0: Hello, and welcome to the Idea to Start Up Podcast. I'm Brian Scordato, and today we've got an awesome guest. Stopping by is Rob Petrazzo, founder of Rally Road. They've got one of my favorite taglines of all time, the investments of the rich now available to all. On Rally Road, you can invest in crazy things as if they were stocks. So a 1963 Ferrari, the shoes Michael Jordan wore in the 1988 dunk contest, Rolexes, Birkin bags, all sorts of stuff. Then, if the things you invested in go up in value and are sold for a higher price, you make a profit. We talked to Rob about a lot of things today, about storytelling, creating a brand, growing very slowly, and then growing very fast with multiple rounds of investment from world-renowned venture capitalists. It's a fun conversation that you'll get a lot out of, and you should definitely check out RallyRoad at rallyrd.com. As always, Idea to Startup is brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, go to gettacklebox.com and we'll help you validate it so you can decide if it's worth quitting and doing full-time. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for coming by.
1: Thank you for having me, man. Sincerely appreciate it. Good to see you again too, man. It's been way, way too long.
0: Absolutely. It's been years. So Let's start with a real quick, easy one. For the people who don't know, can you tell us about Rally Road?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the the short story is that it's the stock market for collectibles. And it's the first ever sort of liquid stock market that allows you to buy and sell these really high-end, rare collectibles that have a strong history of appreciation, but really haven't been available to the masses. They've been available to a small group of the super wealthy. And they always have access to things like high-end classic cars and these vintage watches and wines and these things that they put into their portfolio as collectors and then you know, two, three years pass or five years pass, they've made a ton of money on it, they sell it to some other rich guy and that's kind of what it's been to this point for the last hundred years. Hmm. What we do is we take the stuff that has the most sort of uh, social value and the cultural value and has this really great long history of returns We turn it into an individual stock. So, you know, when it started, it was just classic cars. It was things like vintage Ferraris and Lamborghinis and these things that, you know, they had outperformed the markets for a long time, put them in the app, which is it made it really easy to sort of buy shares the same way you buy shares in Apple or Google. And now it's a little bit of everything. So now we have, you know, handbags and watches and sneakers and cars and this whole sort of ecosystem of collectibles that have been really hard to access that you can kind of, you know, buy and put into a really diversified portfolio.
0: Very cool. Um, I want to start with one question before we get into the, and we're going to get real deep on the origin story and all that. Um, but I want to start. I was browsing through Rally Road, both the stuff that you have on the site now, the stuff from the past. So my first question, I have a very clear answer for myself. but. <laughs> The First question is: What is your favorite item that's ever been up for auction? Do you call it auction, or
1: I mean, we it's it's an initial offering, so we do like an IPO sure. basically. So we're taking all these little individual things public every week. So um, when we first started, again, it was just classic cars, and that was kind of for me as somebody who's been a designer his whole life, and as somebody who you know I grew up in Brooklyn, and there was uh, you're on these streets full of cars. There's always one on the block that would stand out. You'd be like, oh, I want that one. I never saw this car, but I had a diecast model of it. it was a, a a Jaguar XJ220, which was like for me, when I was younger, as like someone who wanted to draw all day, I was just drawing that car all the time, and I was wow. playing with this model, and it was just this thing that when I saw it in person, I was like, I I made this emotional decision that we have to have it. Mm. And uh, my co-founders, Chris and Max kind of agreed. And that was one of the early offerings that we did on the platform. This $500,000 Jaguar that looks like a spaceship. That was always the one that I like really gravitated towards for sure.
0: Very cool. So that was a cool moment.
1: Yeah. That was like a real, that was that weird nostalgic moment where all of a sudden I was like a seven year old again. And I was thinking about (laughs) the exact moment on 80th street, sitting in my bedroom, playing with this toy. And I was like, this is a real business. I think
0: (laughs) we're going to talk about the nostalgia. Um, for me, I looked through and the answer is easy. It's the 88 Jordan 3's game-worn yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, that was... That's
1: like my second right now. It's like my second favorite right now.
0: And we'll talk about that specific instance, because I think the way that you promote the story is, is really, really cool. And when we were talking earlier, we talked about how this business is storytelling, and I, I can't sure. wait to get into that. But let's... So let's start with the story. So let's go back to the early days. And I think a cool way to do this, I looked... I actually found it today. I looked through my email. It was to a different email address. I saw the initial introduction between us, and it was 2015. Yeah. And early, man. And early. Early. And we met in a coffee shop, and you told me what... Became came this idea. Um, so I'm interested, like where, remind me again what that initial idea was and then ha- like talk through how the idea came about and then how you sort of started to coalesce and create something out of it.
1: Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, I think um, like a good note to all founders is not to be an hour late to the first <laughs> meeting. Like I was with Brian, that's my <laughs> bed. But uh, when I showed up at, you know, Lock alone on Hudson Street, I'm sitting there with uh, with an old MacBook and this idea. And the original idea was really about that storytelling component. It was about I was working on something. My co-founder and CEO, Chris, was working on something. We knew there was an in-between. I was a designer. He was somebody that had a a background in venture and a lot of ideas about where this space could go in terms of collectibles and the stock market aspect. For me, from a design standpoint, it felt like storytelling was getting way shorter. And the ability to sort of tell a concise story and do it in a way that made it news to you was going to be really important as a selling component, a selling mechanism. So the first idea that I had, my portion of this business is really from the front end, the UI and the UX was about like a news aggregate that was going to always surface information that was relevant to you and a small group of your friends to kind of make this conversation piece that we can kind of sell product out of. So if you have, you know, something really relevant that happened yesterday uh, in like a sporting event, and it's something where there was like, you know, a gif for, for three or four seconds during that game, and it's a specific pair of sneakers, we should be able to sell that sneaker the same way that we're selling the news. And that was kind of the idea that I showed you was this really basic, all-encompassing news ecosystem that had really short-form content and the ability to sort of check out and purchase what you were reading about. And that was like the first iteration of what would be the front end of this platform for sure. And you were like the first person I showed to. And so being an hour late to that meeting and showing it to you, I was like, this is already failing. we already <laughs> out of the gate. It's already a wrap. Like it's, it was over from that point <laughs> forward, but it turned into something good eventually. So that was good.
0: Yeah, and, and so let's talk about two things. So first... Um... Were you, did you have a co-founder from day one? Did you guys decide to do something together?
1: Yeah. So this was really, I was at a, I was at a different company. I was at a company called Kimi here in New York and I was super early there. Um, And while I was there, like you're always, as a designer, you're always kind of thinking about other stuff and it's always a side project. There's always some sort of like side hustle where you're trying to make a little bit extra on your paycheck and figure out what you're going to do next. And that's been like a gift and a curse for me for a long time. Because its attention span is nowhere. You know what I mean? I'm all <laughs> over the place. Then the the polar opposite of that is my co-founder Chris. One of my co-founders, Chris, is our CEO, and and he's somebody who I've known for 25 years. He's always been like the really smart, analytical, pragmatic friend of mine and my group of friends. And he's somebody that he worked in venture for a long time. He had done a he started you know two or three companies, had an exit, and he really understood the dynamics of the business, how to create this as a real business. And his idea was always like a stock market for collector cars. He had this idea that he knew so much about cars and he knew so much about the the appreciation cycle and where the enthusiasts were and so many of the really specific makes and models and the dynamic of the collector base versus the actual enthusiast base. So he he called me around that same time when we were talking and he's like, I got this idea. It was called the Rolling Stock Exchange back then. And he was like, well, we can take these cars and turn them into companies. And that was like mind blowing for me. So now I'm thinking about like, this car has this this cap table and these this... These funds that go into its bank account. There's a bunch of investors that are part of it, and it really sounded a lot like raising money for a company, like we had to wind up doing. So melding those two things together was the a conversation that we had at a different coffee shop in like a, you know beginning of 2015. But we had been throwing the idea around about working together for a long time, and it kind of turned into something very real, very
0: quickly right after we spoke. Actually, very cool. Um, so a few questions on that. So first of all, the early team kind of looked like. He was pragmatic. He had a very specific idea about mm-hmm. stock exchange for cars. Mm-hmm. You were design, storytelling, creative. Mm-hmm. That's a really nice mix to start with.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's always this thing like when you start any company where it's it's what's the team makeup, and it's it's a lot of times it's like you have these three components of of product and design, engineering, and the business side like operations. And if you can get two two out of the three of those out of the gate, it feels like you're so far ahead of the game because they can kind of play off each other. And then the third piece for us wound up being finance, which was our third co-founder, Max, who had been college roommates with Chris and they had known each other for a long time. And he was at Barclays and he was like taking companies public. He knew like the real mechanisms to make this work from the finance side. And that for us, we knew engineering could fall into place and we'd get that done correctly if we had a product, a business and the financial aptitude to really make it happen. And the three of us together, I think, was a really good play on all those.
0: Yeah, I mean, I my next question was about idea of Venn diagrams. And, and I think you already answered it and I can kind of like Pull it together for people. Basically, the way that we think about ideas at Tacklebox, at least, is we want you to be have been like unconsciously preparing for this startup your entire life, like yeah. not meaning to, but doing it anyway. Yeah. And so when you look at the product that you've built. You've got the three of you who have unique skill sets or knowledge bases that are perfect for this opportunity. So, you've got like um, the deep knowledge of cars and the deep operational expertise. You've got the storytelling component in you. And then you have the financial background that understands the IPO process, which is what you guys are doing. Yeah, for and, sure. Like, you can't think of a better three people to start that company. That's really interesting.
1: It's also pure luck in that, like, we all, <laughs> we all trusted each other. You know what I mean? Like, yep. even now, like, we fight all the time, but the fights are always rooted in, like, you know, fiercely defending your portion of the product that we've built and you're in a position that it's impossible for me to not say like chris you're wrong about our product just like it's impossible for max to tell me you're wrong about you know what do you know about money like what do you know about about dealing with lawyers and banks like i don't know anything about it so i want to be put in my place in those situations we trust each other enough to know that like even if we hate each other for 10 seconds, we don't actually hate each other. So that's been good too with the three of us.
0: That level of trust is tough to get to. And we've talked to other founders on the show and it's usually something that takes six months a year. So if you've yeah. known each other for a long time, you get to skip that part too.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you have no choice going to be with somebody, you know, 90 hours a week, 100 hours a week. <laughs> like if you don't get it, you don't put it all on the
0: table at some
1: point and get it out of your system like that just is going to last forever for sure.
0: Cool. So let's let's rewind back a little bit and let's talk about, so you've got this idea, the two of you are starting to work on it. You've got a job. Do you, you still have his job at this point? So he, he had
1: just left a company called Network of 1 in California but he was also like my first friend to move to California and like you know be on the west coast doing something brand new with people we didn't know that well so it was when he came back he had all this new sort of I, I feel like had all this new product knowledge from working with a brand new team and doing it on the west coast and doing it with new people and uh he was ready sort of i think to decompress for a little while but with the idea that certain people can't stay still and not do something he was always ready to move really quickly and uh for me i was at kimi um, which is a company now that's pretty well known in New York that does it's a kind of a computer vision play that does digital locksmith where it's a you know, take a picture of your key, it lives in your app, I can print it out at any kiosk. And when I went there, I was like, you know, employee number five or six, it was the first real product hire, I had built out a lot of what we what that company still uses now for, you know, two years, two and a half years in. And at that point, it felt like it's an engineering play and It felt like my role there was going to change dramatically to either be sort of part of the operations or doing stuff that's just maintaining an existing platform. I know I didn't really want to do that. And I think, you know, my former CEO, Greg, was one of the best CEOs I've ever worked for, Greg Marsh. He kind of saw it too. And he was young enough and and a great enough operator to realize, like, this might not be the right place for me long-term too. So we were already talking about what, like, the exit might look like. And for me, at that point, it was it was me really pushing the narrative in the direction that I was going to do my own thing anyway. So he's been he's always been helpful with that. And he always knew that it was something I wanted to do when I left. I wasn't going to go to, like, competing company. I was going to start my own thing. So the sort of groundwork was set... And then it was just a matter of like finding the extra 20, 30 hours a week while I still had a job to be working on this. That inevitably turns to 40 hours and 50 hours and 60 hours quickly. Then you have no life and you're not sleeping. You got to leave that job. You know what I mean? I got to that point quickly.
0: Cool. And I think that's actually a really relatable thing to go through because a lot of our founders, a lot of the listeners are in that spot right now where they have a job, they have another idea and they're sort of carving out those 20 to 30 hours. So mm-hmm. kind of two questions on that. Um, one, how did you prioritize? Like how did you know how best to use those 20 20- Hours. We'll start there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I was still young at the time, so I'm an old man now. Back then, when you're like 20, (laughs) 27 years old, 28, 29, 30 years old, like it's way, way easier to sort of find it than when you're 36. But that being said, it's also a situation where you have no choice. I mean, if you're, for me, from a creative standpoint, like I'm too creatively curious to be sitting at a job and doing the same thing all day. Even when I'm there, like I'm running out to grab lunch or whatever, and I'm taking notes and I'm emailing myself on a different email address, like with <laughs> the ideas, and I'm trying to make sure that like I'm putting as much as I possibly can into my my actual day to day where I get the paycheck from. But inevitably, you gotta find that time at night. Like it really, it sucks for a year. Like the first year definitely sucks, and there's no money in it. There's, the idea is basic. No one out of your family or friends even understands what you're talking about. Your elevator pitch is garbage at that point too. You can't explain anything you're doing. They're just like, You have this job. Why what are you talking about? Why are you leaving? Why would you do something new? But if if you're excited enough about something that you're you know, you're in the shower thinking about it and you're about to go to sleep and you're up for an extra hour making notes to yourself, you're gonna find that time. Like you just it, it's inevitable that you're gonna find twenty hours to do something you actually wanna do even though the other 45 or 50 hours are maintained by somebody else's company.
0: And what were the validation points that allowed you to say like, all right, it's time for me to actually go out and do this on my own? Yeah, there there were a couple of really big
1: ones, but a lot of them came from conversation where I thought in my head, like I was, I'm still, I'm a first-time founder. I've been part of like founding teams, but it was something where my Rolodex wasn't, you know, call up Peter Thiel type stuff and Ben Horowitz going to jump on a phone call. It was a bunch of people who were, uh, in my opinion, were like a one tier above where I was in terms of career. And I'd also seen it once or twice already. So in the beginning when there was no pitch and there was no real product, there was no designs, it was me explaining it to people. And they were like, yeah, it sounds cool. Let me know, you know if I can help. But it was a lot of it was just, you know, they care about me so they just pat me on the back for the time being. When we had design done, we had the first iteration of the app and I spun up something quick on uh, with the developer on Upwork just to get like a front end demo. And I gave it to one of my other, my former CEO, uh, a guy by the name of John Lima. I put in his hand kind of, and he was touching it. Like I could see his face a little bit, light up a little bit where he's like, oh, this is a real thing. That to me was like, now I have some people around me who've done it, who've raised money, who've been excited about what I've done in the past, but more as on a friendship level. And now they're looking at it like it's an actual product. And that to me was like very much two or three of those reactions to actual tangible product was automatic. Like, let's get out of here. Let's make it real. And that was
0: it. Cool. Kind of a logistics thing, but I think, again, could be interesting for our folks. Um, Can you just describe what Upwork allows you to do? Yeah, so
1: Upwork is a a freelance platform that allows you to get developers or designers or some other crazy stuff, too. It's like this weird, it's this place that's almost like, I look at it kind of like an Alibaba, but for for freelance work. But it's also something where I've made some really awesome connections on Upwork starting in like 2014, 2015. Developers that I still use to this day for so much of the quick stuff that we spin up. Where it's a great relationship that's formed, we can keep it moving. You can get whole agencies off there, but it's also a place where, like, when you're in a gym and you know you want to spend, you know, twenty bucks an hour, and you're not gonna get the best developers for twenty dollars an hour, but you're also gonna get somebody who's focused on your product and your product alone. That's, in my opinion, still the best place to do it.
0: Very cool. So it sounds like you're working on product. Your co-founder, he's full-time on this as well. So you guys are hacking away at this. How did you think about customers early on? So you've got like a bunch of different types of customers, I would imagine. So how are you validating that people would want to invest in these things, not not just that you could build a desirable product?
1: Yeah, so we were doing – we were trying to build out – like we built – the product and we developed like the first two or three personas based on luck a little bit. So we were in a shared office. We got uh, Chris, my, my co founders uh, one of his old partners at a different company, was in a new space a couple blocks away from here in the, on 27th Street or 26th Street. And he's like, I got three extra desks. Do you guys want to come hang out here basically? So now we're around these two other ad tech companies all day. They're in the same space as us. And like we're looking around kind of thinking who's going to be the, <laughs> the most likely investor in any of these cars like that's in this room right now. And we found this one guy. We found him as Brendan Smythe, and he's all. He was also the guy who gave us the office space. So we named our first persona Brendan. And we're thinking <laughs> in our head, like, you know, it's a guy. He's in his 30s. He's he's understands tech. He's super tech empathetic. He's also somebody who understands value. Has a little bit of a portfolio, but he's not a day trader. He looks and acts a lot like us. He's also somebody that can respect like a good product. We're like, all right, let's let's at least target that if we're right then we're on to something if we're not it's a quick fix cuz the product is still early so we developed hmm. personas that looked and felt a lot like us who we knew were the super users of the platform to start it came, the idea came about because we wanted access to this stuff so we could find one or two personas that are kind of like adjacent to us and uh, have a little bit you know a different a different niche potentially then it might make sense so Brendan was our guy. He was somebody that's not like super, super into cars, but understood what they were, understood the value that goes with them. So that was like the first target. And we built out our whole demo based on that person, basically.
0: Very cool. And just to help people out with what a persona is, do you want to describe it and then how you use it? Yeah. So
1: persona is this, this thing from a product and design standpoint where it's like, this is this is the prototypical customer. And it usually breaks into to two or three or four individuals. And you have your persona A, which in this case is our Brendan. It's somebody who you know you're going to target directly. You're expecting that to be the majority of your platform usage and the majority of your users. Then you have your your ancillary personas, where it might be someone who skews a little bit older, or a different gender, or it might be someone in a different part of the country, or a different demographic. The makeup is all different. A lot of it is based on on ideas that have been semi-validated along the way, whether it's someone you talk to, or some of the design you built out, or where you think it should go based on the marketplace you're attacking. And then a lot of it is based on, to me, at least in the beginning, is going to be based on a lot of variables that you can add as many constants as possible, but a little bit of an educated guess that leads to what will be your true personas later on, which for us changed a little bit but not that dramatically based on the first essentially three very well educated guesses.
0: That's great. You had instincts around who the customer would be and they turned out to be right.
1: Yeah, there was one that we got wrong. We thought we always thought that uh like the car enthusiast, the hardcore car buyer, and someone who really knows every detail about like, you know, the engine of this individual vehicle would gravitate towards our platform. So the first, you know, mini activation we did with a little bit of money we had in the bank account. Was at the New York Auto Show in 2017, I think that was. And uh, it just didn't resonate. Like, it hmm. doesn't, it works now because we have a little bit of trust in the platform. But back then, like, somebody who really was every weekend was in the garage tuning their car up or, like, you know, street racing in New Jersey or, or going to all the car shows wasn't somebody that was gonna spend money on our platform. They came in, they hung out in that a little bit and they, they would share it with friends, but, you know, super, super high cost for, to turn that person into an investor. That Very was the one we got way wrong.
0: Hmm. So, something I wanna call out that is like, pretty amazing is it's very easy for founders to sort of fall in love with these early personas or early customers and say like, this is my customer. And then when you build something for them and they don't like it, you take it personally. And then you try and build something else for that person or say like, well, maybe that was just like a bad example of it because you take that personally. It sounds like you guys treated it like a science experiment, which is amazing where you say like all right let's see if this person's actually my customer or not if it works great if not great
1: yeah i mean that's that's a perfect way to put it like we were all bought into the idea that it would be great to have that person be our customer cuz that person too like the, when we did the research on what that persona could be it's you know a lot of disposable income they travel to go to car shows they're people that they've been on the sidelines without a way to invest for a long time so they wind up buying you know a lesser version of the car they really want and we can give them access to all those things that we felt like they wanted and needed but then you realize like they're going to come in your app and they're not gonna be someone that gravitates towards what you've built. We could have rebuilt everything and made it this sort of fantasy football for cars, which is one of the original ideas. Hmm. But then it would have been legitimately like at this point where where it spent a lot of money on lawyers and runway is tight, and it's just like, damn, do we really think about rethinking product for this person that might not have that long term value? Or do we go where the where right now, you know, follow the trend, it's your friend. It's we had these people that we knew cared about what we were doing. They weren't the the hardcore car enthusiasts, but why not build for the group that's already there?
0: Awesome. So I want to take you back to the first time that you had an IPO for a car. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like there's a lot of upfront cost to that, like whether it would be legal or how the mechanics actually work with you. Do you own that car up front? It sounds like there's a big, there's like a hump there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'd love to hear about how you guys approached that and attacked it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we it's like any other problem that you can throw money at. We just threw money at it to start. And, and like Chris bought the first two cars out of pocket, basically. Wow. And it was a a situation where like we knew we had a little bit of, there were people in the app right and there was a bunch of friends now who we had a real sort of live demo of a product they were paying attention to and they were asking how it was going and seeing if we needed help we had a couple people trying to intern for us that we actually brought on board as our first employees like the interns to turn into long term employees and they're still at the company now but it was this situation where it was like we can't obviously do this forever buying going out sourcing a vehicle trying to find an expert to validate it getting every the, everything authenticated doing the photo shoot putting in the app, uploading everything piece by piece in this manual process and then submitting it to the SEC in a way where they can, you know, understand this as an investment. That whole process for the first car, which was a seventy seven thousand dollar vehicle, was um around like eight months, nine months total for that first IPO that we ever did. Wow. And it took around like two months to fill, two and a half months to fill, seventy seven thousand dollars of an IPO. Which now we do, you know, we're tracking to do like, you know, around half a million an hour right now. We do wow. We do IPOs of $100,000 items in five and 10 minutes. So looking back on it now, it was insane. But that also set the groundwork, throwing all that extra money at it and all the legal attention at it and making sure the SEC really understood the whole process start to finish. Doing that for nine months and having it cost, you know, an extra $100,000. Now that whole process is, you know, in a matter of days and it's costing in in the thousands. So if we can do that every time, I would never go back and change it, make it way, way quicker because we had a lot of learnings that went along with that. And we spent money wrong and we did some things that obviously in retrospect, we would change. But having done that, we know the right way to do it now too. And we have, you know, a great legal team that we work with. And the SEC has great, understands exactly what we're doing start to finish. So as we go into other verticals and add new stuff to these offering statements, they're not in a position that they have to relearn it. Like everything has worked because that nine months to was so long, was so
0: expensive for us, basically. Really interesting. So this has always been a real capital intensive project. How did you think about that early on? So did you guys recognize like, okay, we're going to have to be raising money one for, like, your product is raising money, so yep. that's, like, one competency. But then the competency outside of raising money for the specific IPOs of the products, you're going to have to be raising money for the company constantly.
1: Yeah, it turns out to start, <laughs> start a company like ours, you need a lot of money. And yep. a lot of that went to, like, legal bills early. Now a lot of it's operations. And obviously, like, we we don't have a market, a true marketing component of the company, but a lot of what we'll do in the next year is about making a brand name and, and making sure that, you know, we're in front of the right people. But in the beginning... It was very much uncharted territory, and we we were the first to do it. And it was something where we were leveraging this regulation in Reg A Plus, which now is a little bit more front of mind. And it's it's this direct listing where like Slack's IPO was done the same way that we do our car IPOs. And uh, so it's got a little bit more recognition outside the space. So explaining it and explaining what we do was what cost the most money in the beginning. And now mm. it's a little bit more front of mind for a lot of the right people, both our users, our lawyers, the SEC, everybody along the way between you know 2014, 2015, and now is kind of caught up to a lot of what that regulation is and how it actually works. Um, But in terms of the individual assets, we in the beginning, you know, it was super labor intensive. We didn't have anybody trying to help us. But as we sort of built up this product and got a lot of attention and did some partnerships here and there, now we're in a position that in the beginning, we were buying each car one by one, we were actually acquiring it for the most part, and then running this process as this singular thing per vehicle. Now we're at a point that we're doing 15 and 20 at a time, a lot of it's inbound. We have great partnerships outside just the vehicle space with, you know, the number one and number two supplier in so many of these spaces. So the supply constraint changed a little bit, and it's not money out of pocket. A lot of times it's either a short-term debt agreement or it's a consignment model. But it Mm. took us, you know, three years and proving that we can sell something quicker than like an auction company – for any of these people with these high-end collections of watches and cars and and you know memorabilia to come to us and say like I think there's something we can work on together and that's that's what the biggest buildup was to get to the point we are now where for that seventy-seven thousand dollar Lotus it probably cost us you know ten to twenty thousand dollars to keep it on the books in the beginning just because we had to make sure it was maintained and stored and all these things that. Now that's part of the process. Like part of the checklist of what we need now before we take anything public is the ability to keep that price way 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 down so we're never passing anything on to the investor.
0: That's really interesting. Sounds like you have a streamlined internal product for each of these assets that you bring on and it feels like it scales pretty nicely to different types of assets as well.
1: Yeah, that's where we got we got a little bit lucky in that the SEC and our lawyers when we started putting together the paperwork for stuff outside of cars kind of understood what we were doing at that point and they had an opinion on it. So they had and understanding of what we've done, we have proven success. We had our secondary market, which again, it's all through registered broker dealers. We're not a broker dealer, but we had a bunch of people on board that were you know, trusted names in the space. And at that point, when it's time to go to other asset verticals, we always set this up where automobiles was like the, if you hit command F in our first offering circular, you see it a million times. But replacing that with watch or with you know, a bottle of wine or with any of these other tangible assets is very much part of the streamline process that you know, I credit Max a lot for creating that. Uh, you know, way back, because again, I know, I didn't know anything about finance or about banks and stuff like that. He's just like, trust me, I'll deal with this part of it. Kept me abreast along the way, but set it up in a way that even I, a designer who's on the product side, if I had to submit an offering circular right now, the command F find and replace is something I probably could get away with on my side
0: even. Interesting. I think that there's such interesting foresight too, to recognize that you need to stay hyper-focused early on cars, but have the ability to grow pretty seamlessly.
1: Yeah, I want it. I mean, they'll tell you, like Max and Chris will tell you, like I wanted to do a million things in the beginning yep. and immediately, and I didn't care about what anybody was going to say about it. And I was, a lot of times I started doing it myself and they'd calm me down. And be like, yeah, relax, trust me, here's how we have to do it. But if we just did that, we probably would have just run like, an ICO and done some crazy crypto thing in 2017 when it was all the rage and it was super easy to do and you know raise 40 or 50 million dollars and then that would have been it though like then you're you're pigeonholed to only doing it like that and they were in a position with Chris's business expertise and Max's expertise on the finance side to explain that this is how we have to do it to set ourselves up for success in 2019 and 2020 and that paid dividends now for sure
0: cool so I want to talk about something you brought up briefly which I think is is really interesting and critical here and that is you were talking about storytelling of the product to the SEC, to lawyers, to people who like need to understand what you're doing. Um, there's another type of storytelling that you've done extremely well which I think is like your strong suit, which is, or one of them, which is storytelling to the customer. So early on, no one's ever heard of this before. It takes a second to understand what it is that you're actually doing. There's a, there's obviously a clear comp, um, for like equities and that sort of thing, but no one done this before. So how did you tell that story to your first customers and get them excited? And, and who were those first customers?
1: Yeah, we got lucky in that. Um, I keep saying we got lucky, but you need know, this, this element of luck cannot be understated without our question. We have a great group of friends myself Chris and Max and they're all people that you know we all even the ones that we're not super familiar with we all have one degree of separation we've been in the same room with at some point so I have my group of friends Chris has his group of friends Max has his there's this this Venn diagram overlay with a lot of those for sure but they were people that um, we brought into the company in a very meaningful way early on and we made sure like to keep them abreast on everything we were doing and we had our own little set of emails and communication that went to that small group who was like our friends and family which is something that we still do now to make sure that everybody's always getting an update on where we are as a business and we always did it with like a little bit of an action item around it too and we still do that so it's like you know uh also here's this car that's coming coming live so if you have any questions about it let us know and then inevitably a few people ask some questions and we format that and sort of what the storytelling looks like for that individual vehicle and now we do it in a way where back then 2014-15 like the social media wasn't where it is now and i feel like a dinosaur talking like that but now like you know it's this weird world where on Instagram that's where all like, you know, the influencers with a very specific aesthetic live there. So that we treat Instagram as a place that we show the pretty pictures and tell a small story. Then Twitter has all the VCs and all the people that pay attention to short form yeah. stories. So that's where we tell the actual the information about individual assets piece by piece by piece, and these little little tweet storms that really explain why something you recognize from maybe when you were a little bit younger and you know it has value. But here's the real story behind it about why it's an investment. And we try and tell that story on those mediums as effectively as we possibly can. And we still keep make sure that we keep like that group of friends and our core investors and the people who pay the most the super users on the platform abreast of all this stuff through email, through text, through all those regular chains of communication.
0: Yeah, I think one of your guys' superpowers is that I get emails from you guys and I've been getting them for a long time. Yeah, I threw you on that
1: subscription list without (laughs) telling you. Sorry dude. That's definitely a no for founders in the future.
0: (laughs) But but like it's impossible to get mad because you so like the currency of you is everything you do is interesting. So like the cars are interesting. I don't know much about watches, but it's still interesting to see a watch and then be like, oh my god, this is going for one hundred twenty thousand dollars or yeah. Mickey Mantle card. That's interesting. All this stuff is interesting. And I think that's a lesson for founders because you had this excuse or or almost like a get out of jail free card for sending me updates pretty consistently where it was like, I'll read this update because I'm interested in this car. And it. I think that's really fascinating because I get tons of of updates and sometimes I'll read them. Sometimes I won't, but mm-hmm. yours is an auto open.
1: Appreciate that. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know what it is? It's crazy too. Cause people think and I've done this too. There's this weird, like the, I'm not good enough thing. Or like that, that weird imposter syndrome thing where you're thinking in your head, like nobody wants to hear what I have to say, but you can get away with that. Nobody, maybe no, I'll be straight with you. Like sometimes I don't want to hear what an individual person I say about like people that they're talking about that I don't know, but there's always a piece of that story, whether it's like a pair of Jordans or a car or whatever it is, you're gonna tr- you're gonna trigger something from somebody. If you can get if you can reel them in with that a little bit, you can tell the detailed story once you have their attention. And you know we cheat a little bit, and I'll put up a picture of like a Jordan on top of five hundred thousand dollars. People are gonna stop and look at the picture at least, and then once I have, like, I can tell a little bit more of that story, and I don't have to have that same feeling of like people don't want to hear about me talking about myself. I'm using something else, and I'm just putting it out sometimes. Sometimes it'll hit, sometimes it won't, but it's stupid to keep that in if you have a good story to tell for sure.
0: Yeah. And I found a couple of quotes from another interview you've done and I really like both of them. So one is the headline or the image of a platform has to make its way into a consumer's group chat. So have you dev- designed your product with that in mind, with that shareable? Yeah.
1: I mean, we always want, we like tease products now in a way where we, we show like the initial image and we give a quick quote or a story, but the whole, the way that we've developed the app is really as what I showed you essentially in 2014, 2015 is this, this really short form messaging around product, around a thing, and that could key some nostalgia. And that's something as basic as like we put a bunch of GIFs into the emails and into the into the actual app and the product page where like for, for the Jordan 3s that are going public, you know, end of January, it's it's Jordan taking off from the foul line, which is a super iconic shot wearing those sneakers. So any of those little pieces, and then a quote from like, you know, from from Phil Knight about how it saved the company, all that stuff, we want it to be like a screenshot and find its way into a group chat. And that's something that's everybody now talks about like a flywheel relative to like when they used to talk about funnel and top of funnel, which is essentially the first time like the way a person comes in, then you gotta get them through that funnel. And that funnel requires a bunch of positive reinforcement along the way before it becomes a purchase. The best way to reinforce a product that you should buy or you should spend money on or should pay attention to is a bunch of friends reacting to you talking about it. So if we can get into a group chat and send a picture out, and that spurs, you know, a seven or eight or ten line conversation with you and six other friends, we know we'll get at least you and one of them. And if we could do something like that more often, then we could always sort of have new, more interesting product for those people available too.
0: It's a really interesting way of thinking about it in in that sort of granular way where like we'll have a lot of people who will say like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna create a facebook ad or i'm gonna do this or that and get in front of like twenty thousand people but actually what's gonna move the needle for you is this like giant game of telephone with the people who care about your brand where they're like screenshotting jordans and whatever and, and it's funny you mentioned that when we were out in the waiting room before this i was sort of scrolling through some stuff i saw that story that you told about the jordans on twitter i screenshot it i sent it to my friend who, who likes sneakers that's your growth story
1: yeah i didn't know that and before you came in here but that's like the for us that's the plan i talked we have uh by the name of Paul, who does our, our a lot of our paid social in-house, and he really understands sort of like what the the metrics for success are on social platforms. But I talked to him a lot about this. I just talked about it yesterday, about how like I really do have this feeling, and it's impossible to quantify, that good content and really thoughtful content is always going to sell better than like good targeting. And Facebook has gotten so expensive, and Instagram's gotten so expensive, and the noise is so vast. If you're not cutting through noise with content, in my opinion, You're setting yourself up for really expensive failure. And that's what we always want to avoid. And that's like, you know, what I think about in terms of the long form, it's way harder to track somebody who screenshots something and sends it somewhere else. But once that person comes in, I feel like the long-term value of that customer is going to show itself at some point.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's funny you mentioned that. We've been doing something with our startups where we help them with customer acquisition, but they're not allowed to use Instagram or Facebook. That's an awesome
1: idea. That's Be, an awesome idea.
0: Because you're you're almost like you guys are venture backed, but if you're if even if you're venture backed, it's almost too expensive now cuz venture money comes in and just gets blasted out into Facebook ads cuz people. Yeah, it's all like,
1: subsidized by like any Facebook ad you see is subsidized by some sort of venture money for the most part. Any subway ad you see, any billboard, like all that type of stuff, the, any of the outdoor campaigns It's great. And for brand awareness, when you're a growth company and it's expected, you know, we talk about this too, me and Chris and Max talk about like, once you take the check, it's it's too late, you can't go back. Like you took the first <laughs> check, you know what I mean? You're you're part of the system now, and that system expects their money back in three to five years, you know? So if you're not doing something unique, you're not gonna be able to sort of hit those numbers. And our guys in house and Paul and all the people that work on our team that are doing all this the ad based stuff or doing some of that paid, like they understand that too, and they know that there's the nuts and bolts sort of paid ads, the hammer and nail stuff. Like you're gonna have a specific number for your cost for install and your cost for an investor, and that's gonna live there and that's necessary to some degree to get more of the brand awareness. But there's all this untrackable stuff that we don't ever get mad if I if people are spending money on the app and people are really excited about what they see. And we can't track that back to a very specific hack. You know what I mean? Like we're not trying to do something like that. We're trying to really make it a meaningful experience where we know long-term that value will show itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important for founders to recognize that if you're playing in that sandbox of Instagram ads, Facebook ads, whatever else, it's an artificially highly priced sandbox.
1: Yeah. And it's very black box too. Like you don't, it's the best algorithm that exists right now is the one that Facebook does for you instead of you trying to figure out the targeting yourself. But at that point, you're just saying like, I trust Facebook so much, I'll I'll get all my users off of Facebook. But they're not yours. Like, they're Facebook users that come in or they're Instagram users that come in. If they don't like what they see, they're gone. They're not re. They're not. They're leaving the app. They're not going to reinstall. There's no lifetime value for that. We always want to
0: focus on lifetime value. Very cool. And that's living inside someone's chat is amazing. It's so interesting because if I'm sharing a product, almost 99% of the time, it's because I'm going to buy that product or I'm I'm ready to buy that product, that specific product. Like before this, I sent a screenshot of of like a workout T-shirt from Outdoor Voices to my girlfriend to see if she liked that, and that's what that's the transaction. Mm-hmm. But yours is different because yours is so aspirational. Like the aspirational piece and the nostalgic piece are there, so you can. Share stuff that you have no intention of buying and you're just creating like brand awareness and brand equity without a purchase, which I think is like brilliant. I don't know if you guys no, did I that appreciate it. We
1: talked about that too. Like that was Chris's first pitch. When we first started talking to VCs and we were like, how are we going to position this? And this was during the height of like influencer economy. And it was, uh, people were just starting to get paid for like massive, massive checks for YouTube videos and for having an audience. And we always thought about it, like the way he pitched it was that the car is a celebrity and we don't have to pay them. And they're mm. not somebody who's like going to have an attitude one day and not show up for the shoot. It's like they're going to be there every <laughs> single day. It's something you recognize. It's this celebrity. It's this George Clooney of cars. You know what I mean? I said we were calling the cars by like actor names. You know? <laughs> and we're thinking in our head like that is the right pitch. It's something where... That story has told itself a little bit. What we do is just tweak the story to make sure you understand the value proposition. Hmm. And we got away with it because they weren't actual celebrities we had to pay for, who had to be on call and show up and put their face in front of a camera. That's like where we got away with it, basically.
0: Really interesting. Yeah. That's a cool perspective. I haven't thought of that. Yeah, we haven't used that
1: in a while. I got to bring that back to our pitch deck now. I forgot about that. Until you just <laughs>
0: Um, so I want to ask you one question before we get into the growth part of the company. Um, so putting yourself back in those early days, I'm sort of an essentialist where I believe that like 99% of stuff that we do doesn't matter at all and 1% matters in a minute. That's a fact, so is there anything that you did early that lands in that 1% column, anything that just had outsized gains for you that either you can talk about or suggest to other founders to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we just started building. I mean, this is this is a very broad stroke one, but we had the opportunity to raise money without having a product, and that was still possible back then. It's a little tougher now, but great ideas still and great execution are always going to surface if you've done a little bit of the legwork. We uh, we didn't wait while Chris was out you know, trying to acquire vehicles and start the conversations with a bunch of investors. I just buckled down and built the the original version of the product, basically. And that was a little bit of everything, like a little bit, all the design, a little bit of code, dealing with a little bit of product management, all of it start to finish to get to a point that instead of showing somebody a deck, I could put the app in their hand and say, do whatever you want to do with it. So that became uh, early user research because you could see how somebody's actually using the product you built, but also it makes it tangible. Like you've done something and you've created it from scratch. Even if it's a little bit of a puppet show, that always shows better than a deck. And that wound up taking a lot of a huge chunk of my time. But in the grand scheme of things, we probably didn't need to do it to raise the first check. But it made the second and third check that much easier because we're not focused focus on product. We're, you know, three years into our actual front end right now to our, our iOS app. It hasn't changed dramatically, but we had so many learnings from having it in people's hands early as a demo. I would, never, I would never now start anything new without building it to validate it to myself before it went elsewhere.
0: I think that that's something that people miss. I think about this in terms of like a, sm- I call it like the startup smile curve. The graph kind of looks like a smile with a big dip in the middle. And basically, if you're building for a very small, specific audience with a very specific offering, people will take action. And there's like this big dip in the middle where everybody is with this sort of mediocrity. Mm-hmm. And then the other side is where you're like doing amazing things for a lot of people. And it's like Apple. Like yeah. you can't reach there. Yeah. But on the left side of that, you can do stuff that kind of stands out. So like you think about that pitch most people sort of slide into the middle of that graph where they're like, I'm going to put together a pitch deck, I'm going to send a cold email, I might get a warm uh, email if I can, and then it's just going to look like everything else. Yeah. But you're able to do something different and it's like, oh yeah, this is this product is like at this stage, this early stage where most people have a deck, but we kind of have a product. Yeah. And that allows you to jump out from the other 50 pitches that they got that day.
1: Yeah, I was. that's funny you mentioned that because we, we were trying to, and we still do it, trying to differentiate as much as possible, especially with the way we communicate with people that we need things from. And even now, like we send out our our, uh, our email updates at like 7.45 a.m. on Sunday because everybody's going to send it on Monday. You know what I mean? And we, Even in the beginning, we were sending our decks out at like 9 p.m. You know what I mean? I'm trying to find a way. I'm an old designer now, but when I was young, it was called Above the Fold. When you're, when you're <laughs> designing for a newspaper, it's the idea that you want to be – someone's going to have that folded on a train somewhere. You want to be above that fold because they're not going to get to the bottom. So we're always trying to be in a position that we're doing something a little bit different, even if it's not dramatically different and sounds so basic like – build a big a big build the first chunk of the product before you show anybody. It sounds so counterintuitive cuz you're going to invest in something that might change, but what comes out of that is something that no one's really seen before. They're always seeing decks or they're always seeing like, you know, a white page instead of a black page. That type of stuff is what we want to always be doing ourselves and we try and preach that as much as possible outside the company. So,
0: that's cool. So thinking about user experience in terms of like the experience of someone who and I like the way you put this like when you're a founder, you're gonna, there's going to be a group of people who you're going to need stuff from. That's just the way it is. And they know,
1: too, by the way, like there's no there's no denying, like they know you're asking for something. You know I mean, you send them an email, you haven't talked to them in a year, they know you need something.
0: <laughs> but that, that's a kind of an interesting thing to think about. Founders need to be in a way, for lack of a better term, selfish. In that, like, you are going to send out emails where you need something from someone. And so then being thoughtful around that and saying, like, all right, this is a selfish email anyway. Let me figure out how it can stand out, maybe offer some value, maybe do something interesting with Mm -hmm. it so that everyone knows why I'm here, but I can maybe still get some value or give some value. Mm -hmm. It's cool. So for the next phase, I want to think about growth. You guys have raised two rounds of capital? Yes, we did. Uh, we
1: raised our seed. And uh, every year around this time of year, we raise money, basically. They've all kind of been preempted where we started the conversation and somebody came in with a check. So we've been lucky in that sense. But we did our first round with a company called Social Leverage and uh, Rev Ventures and a couple of follow-ons from, from some really great sort of seed and angel investors around the country. And then the last round we did with uh, Upfront, which is a consumer company in L.A. led the round with uh, Anthemus here in New York and a couple other follow-ons. Um, Nas, the rapper, came in who's got a really extensive portfolio. Uh, Wonderco in L.A. came in who's, you know, headed by the former chairman of Disney. Um, so a lot of people that we can help with the storytelling, and the consumer aspect of it, too.
0: So. Cool. So I think too many companies start thinking about raising capital. Yours, from the start, has needed capital. So I think that that's...
1: Yeah, we never had the conversation about, like, bootstrapping it and doing it ourselves. We, yeah.
0: we, had, we did in
1: the beginning, like, for the first call year and at that point you know you're not taking salary obviously and you're just putting every every check goes back into the business in some capacity that's necessary but then it got to a point that you know we needed lots of people doing a lot of things at the same time to do that at scale requires a check that we couldn't front ourselves basically at that point so we had to make the decision to give up equity in the business for what we knew would be success if we can grow quickly
0: Sure. So I, th- I think a lot of people will talk about like what it takes to raise funding, that sort of thing. I'm kinda interested in what changes once you have funding. So yeah.
1: everybody wants to talk to you. That's the only difference. Really? <laughs> I mean, no, I was lying, I, no, I mean it's it's a lot of things. When you have before you have money, it's th- it's the same like intent that you have in your mind. Like you always start this business, at least I have and the other businesses I've been early on, and I know Chris and Max have the same way, with the idea that this has to be a big thing. Like we don't want it's binary outcomes. It's it's not like a nice little product for us. It's something where it's where it's starting to go right now is the idea that it can truly be, you know, very disruptive and and financially transformative and and change the marketplace. And that's what we always wanted to do. So in the beginning, when you're raising, our first round we raised was uh, all in was around three million. It was like, what can we do with that check to get to that end goal? And for us, it was like really build out an actual product now, not one that us and our friends can use. And it's to get a little bit of awareness uh, from a from a legal perspective and from a, a governmental perspective about what we're doing to set ourselves up for success the next round. And that was always how we thought about it was, you know, going from January to January. And we've always sort of closed our rounds like end of summer right before the year changed in a way that we knew like the next year is set up for us now and we have to execute. So it's before we get money it's like sell, sell, sell. And it's it's we're selling it to users. We're selling it to friends and family. We're selling it to investors. We're selling the big vision. We get the check, and then it goes like, all right, head down, build for a year, and then sell it again. We have to do it again next time. That's that's what the cycle's been for us at this point. I don't see it changing anytime in the future because we are still in that growth phase right now for sure.
0: I think that's important to bring up, one, how much of if you decide to go the fundraising route or if you think you want to go the fundraising route, how much a part of your business and culture it's going to be. There are two phases, like raising money and then executing on that money. And Raising money, executing on the money it becomes yeah. a flywheel. The second thing is the point where you said it becomes binary. So I think uh, founders might not recognize how once you take money, that decision's sort of been made where you're yeah. like a zero or a one. You want to dig into that a little bit? Yeah.
1: And it's, it becomes a little bit addictive too it's because you want to be in the good graces of all these really important people. So you take the money, right? You make this decision. I'm going to sell a percentage of my company that's not money I get to keep. It's not like I have this exit, like I made money. That's money that goes into fueling the growth of this business. And now you have some very specific performance indicators and things that you have to hit and there's some very, you have to have some very quantifiable sort of solutions in place. And, it's expected from the people that give you that check. So they give you a check and they're your, they're your friends. Like we have great, our investors, we're all friendly, we're very, very friendly with, and they've been supremely helpful. They've never said no to anything and they've been very supportive. But that's also because we've had success. So I haven't been in a situation that things have been so bad, like where I'm I'm thinking in my head, like I got to prove it to these investors and I got to keep them in my good graces. But you are kind of, to be real, like they care about the money more than they care about you. There's no, there's no, these, I'm not talking about accelerators. I'm talking about situations where like you found somebody you went and pitched them, they don't know you that well, and now they gave you like $6 million. That person's not going to be cool with you if you lose their $6 million. (laughs) That's just what it comes down to. So when you're building out that execution roadmap and what that looks like, it really is about, you know, you have this person over your shoulder a little bit, where it becomes make sure everybody involved is happy. That's users, that's your core group of sort of, you know, friends and family, and that's like your investors. And that adding that third group, if things aren't set up in a way where you're really organized and you're really paying attention to that big picture future... It's gonna to be tough to keep everybody on the same page, all three of those groups going forward. This group around us has been so, so supportive. And the good thing about having great, about having an investor is not just the fact that you have money in the bank to grow. But they're going to open that network up too. They want to see you be as successful as they know you could be as the product that they invested in. So, you know, we're in this group of, of companies right now that's a bunch of fintech companies with social leverage and a few others. And anytime we need sort of help with what we're working on from a transactional standpoint or trying to get users or whatever, we could talk to those companies. With Upfront, it's all these consumer companies. It's the the mm. goats of the world and Parachute and all these big companies that are companies I supported already that now we are in the ecosystem and it's one phone call away. All that type of stuff you, you don't get. Hmm. You have to work for really, really hard when you bootstrap it, and it's always meaningful to have that network set up too.
0: That's amazing. You guys have been thoughtful with investors too. That's a good.
1: Yeah, I mean now, now like we going to as we go into the next round of fundraising, we did the fintech stuff. Like we had all the people that you know early investors in Robinhood, and and we had the founders of Betterment and Acorns are investors in the company. These people that have seen the regulatory landscape in a way that we hadn't, so we knocked that one out. That was a big checkmark for us. Going with upfront for the second round was really about consumer. And like, you know, they're the same people that are pushing the narrative for Bird. Like they're part of our company now. And they've done it in a way where they've onboarded millions of users with a bunch of different products that are looking at it from a consumer standpoint. The next one for us is like community is building out what we know this could be from a bunch of different standpoints. and That's what we're looking for in the next investor.
0: Very cool. So I think what's cool to talk about now is like, so you raise some money and questions of like what you do with it. And so what you guys are kind of doing is just like amplifying this storytelling. So I think one thing that's really interesting that I've walked by a couple times is the physical store. Can you talk about one, your approach to growth once you had a little bit of money to spend on it. And then two, the decision to make uh, a physical store.
1: Yeah, I mean, once we got the, the money in the bank, we went to a really expensive dinner and got a bunch of private <laughs> jets and stuff like that. And then we flew over the world and came back. <laughs> but no, nah, once, it's, it once the, the money was in the bank, it really, it was still business as usual for us. But we had that roadmap of what we wanted to do with the business set up well in advance of getting that, the last check, which was this, you know, seven and a $8 million check. That was like the one that was really gonna fuel the growth of this business. And we always knew that we needed to bring these assets that we were selling and that letting people invest into life in some way. So we would do a pop-up here and there. We show up somewhere with the car, but for us, you know, having a physical space that was ours, that wasn't a pop-up, that was a full-time location that anyone could, could visit was part of what we looked at as investor relations, which is what we want to build out in 2019, which is what we were pretty successful at doing, I think. And that we had the stock exchange part set up. We had the, um, we had the, the transactional engines all set up. Now it's like about building out a piece of that community. For us, that was investor relations. So setting up the store that we have on on Lafayette Street in Soho, which when you walk by, you wouldn't really see it. It kind of blends in with the block. But if you stop for a second in front of it, you look in. And right now it's this all gold storefront. It's got a, a 1980s Aston Martin sitting in the middle, the same one that's in the James Bond movie that's coming out. And around the walls, it's set up kind of as a museum where you have those game-worn Jordans there and you have the contract from the Ali Fight of the Century in a glass case and you have, you know, an $80,000, you know, Birkin bag and you have the most famous baseball card of all time, this Honus Wagner T206 card is sitting in the back. Like, where you come in, it's a real museum, but you can leave with a piece of it too. So we have like the iPad set up and we have real way to sort of, you know, get involved with those assets and we put it on a block on Lafayette Street where we're surrounded by like really expensive stores. We're surrounded by like a bunch of high fashion stores and like stock X's across the street from us now. They just moved in and and St. Ambrose and a bunch of restaurants that are always packed with like important people are all around us. So the idea was put this store in the middle of Soho and treat it like our billboard. Let people walk by, walk in and ask, what is this? And anytime we get that, it becomes like a 10 or 15 minute conversation. And as long as we can curate those conversations, it's very similar to the group chat. It's like the group chat goes live, basically. Mm. It's the conversation with you and a bunch of friends. And then when they walk out, they have this epiphany, this this aha moment. That's all we wanted to create with that store, and it's been really successful to this point.
0: I believe it. The more I hear about it, the more clear it is that the story is just unlocking this thing that you never thought would be available to you. I had to do like a double take when you were like, we have the Honus Wagner card. I was like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and we don't really, like we, again, we've never really
1: had like a marketing function of the company. We have- We have Christina who runs a store and Caitlin who does our partnerships and and Paul who does a little bit of our paid and and works on some of that social component. But for us, like seeing it in person was always the most important. So it's almost like, the 3 of those people who work in some marketing function for us are all focused on bringing it to life so we'll do you know a bunch of events in the store and a lot of it, a lot of times it's like private equity companies or hedge funds that'll come in and want to rent the space out for the night we'll do little activations that go along with like an IPO going live inside the store and we'll do a giveaway and have some stuff that goes on there we'll do merch around individual components that are inside the store and if we could do like a few thousand in merch a month one or two events and do it in a way where we're bringing an IPO and making it go live in that store all at the same time and getting people inbound it kind of pays itself off too in terms of the rent and the upkeep so for us, it made no sense not to keep that space as long as we can. Every two months, we change it out with all the assets that are available for like that two month stretch inside the app, go inside the store as well. So you can come there, you can hang out, you can buy some stuff, have some coffee on a weekend, maybe a drink at night if we're doing like a happy hour type of thing. But all around you is all these really important artifacts. You could also leave with equity and if you choose to. But like everything else, we do it very passively. We don't do something where we like advertise it nonstop. It's just a space that we want people to walk into and ask questions.
0: Yeah, I'm ridiculously jealous of this product as I think about it more and more because like, what you're looking for if you're a founder is assets to keep people's attention consistently. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a product that's a, and I think this is a great business model, but if you're not a B2B SaaS product where you mm-hmm. sell something to someone, you make money monthly. What you need to do is sort of like earn your attention each week or each month from somebody because you're going to yeah. sell them something new.
1: Yeah, so it's all trust. That for us is part of like, we. that's why we care more about what our, our cohorts look like over time. What like a group that came mm-hmm. in in January of 2018, like, what are they still doing on our platform? And we find that they still have like a nice diverse portfolio. They're still around. Anytime we can get, you know, somebody to stick around for a full year and go through the full life cycle of, of one individual asset and maybe they sold a couple of shares. Maybe there was one or two exits of the whole thing. But maybe they're just users of the app and they're checking every time something really unique pops up, that for us is a win. We get that out of the store as much as we get it out of the app right now too.
0: And that's what a product has to do is you have to have all these inflection points where you're gaining trust, gaining trust, gaining trust. and Then there's a purchase point. I think a lot of founders assume that people will care more about their product than they actually will like right out of the gates. For sure. And, and what you guys are able to do is just make a promise, keep a promise. Like I'm going to show you something cool. Keep that promise over yeah. and over and over. That's and a perfect way to
1: put it. Out. I'm going to steal that for, for the next <laughs> deck. Keep, we keep the promise. That's it. But it really, that's always what we tried to do. And we didn't, mm-hmm. I still get shocked all the time. Like when people spend money in the app, like when we're looking at the admin system and I see an investment coming, that's never not shocking the idea of strangers investing thousands of dollars in this thing that wasn't even available as an investment until two years ago or three years ago was crazy to me. So it all relates back to me. We did our first pop-up on Wooster Street and we brought uh, this Ferrari in and we just mostly had like friends and family come by. It was kind of a hidden block in Soho, but the strangers would come in and have a conversation with us and they were really into it. And that was like the first, okay, this could work. Then like, Three weeks into that pop-up, Tyler, who was one of our, who was our second employee, got a phone call from somebody who wanted to invest in a car. He wanted to invest in the car and it wound up being like this $8,000 purchase. And I was like, a stranger just gave us $8,000. That's insane. And that guy is still an investor on the platform today. And he has my cell number. He texts me all the time. Like we still talk, you know? <laughs> so anytime I can really bring something to life for somebody to keep them around for two years or three years, that to me is still absolutely shocking. But that's always what our goal has been. That should be the goal in my mind for anything that's not that subscription product. Like you said, it's easy in my mind to get somebody locked in where they can't leave. It's very hard to to keep providing and keeping that promise to individuals that we're always gonna be providing the stuff they care about. And you're going to stick around for two years on this app. It's, it's still shocking that it happens to me, but it's really exciting.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. How has that customer changed as you've grown, as you've like moved to the right on that adoption curve?
1: They've gotten really sophisticated. Like they're the I think a lot of people that came in early, we did a couple of early surveys about our investors in the app, people who invest in all these cars and these watches. And a lot of them were first-time investors. They're not day traders. They have a 401k. They're the people that have, and they're very much like me, like their grandma gave them some Apple shares when they were younger, or, or IBM or whatever, and like they've been watching the market. They know that there's some money to be made, but never really went all in. And those people are the ones now that they've gotten really sophisticated in terms of understanding what a bid and an ask actually mean on a secondary market. They understand like the IPO process in a way that I think a lot of them didn't in the beginning, and now they've been acclimated to the way our system works, and they expect it in other products, too, in other investment products. And that, to us, was always part of what we wanted to, to commit to is being part of this financial ecosystem that now exists because there's all these easier ways to access these equities and these products. So we look at ourselves as wanting to be what Coinbase is to crypto and what Robinhood has become to this group of investors who I think the Fidelities and the Schwabs of the world were neglecting a little bit what they, what Robinhood did for that group. We want to do that for this all-encompassing group of people who have you know great nostalgia around these products, know there's value, but don't really necessarily follow the stock market. This is their stock market. Mm. And we've seen that those users have become very, very savvy around our stock market
0: interesting so this is a tough question for you but and i know the answer is both but is the job to be done for most of your customers or for i'm sure that there's different cohorts are they looking to make money on this or are they looking for nostalgia i know the answer is both but like which one yeah but it's
1: part of the it goes back to the previous question where once things started moving and we had this really dynamic group of assets and things on the platform it became more about making money and less about nostalgia. But it became more about activity, I think, than anything else. If we do trading every Tuesday, it's like a trading window, we call it. So after the the IPO, after something goes public the first time, we get all the investors in, there's you know hundreds or thousands of investors. There's this small little lockup period where no shares can trade. It's called a cooling off period, kind of. And then we open up a trading window. And when that trading window opens, what we've seen is that a lot of people, like the idea of liquidity and being able to sell is a super important part of our platform. And it's a big differentiator for us. But it's also that These people realize, I think a lot of them, the investors realize there is like medium term, long term and short term investments. They're all different. And they're not necessarily rushing for the exits to try and make a quick flip. They become very sophisticated investors. And they believe in the long term value of these individual assets. Part of that is that we do too, you know, like we're not in a position to ever talk about future and I'd be in our lawyers would kill me if I ever talked about like, you're going to make money every time. That's definitely (laughs) not true. But the idea is that you know, these have a history of returns. We invest as a company up to 10% of each asset. And that comes off our books. We can never sell until the actual asset sells. And we're here when I'm on Twitter telling a story about a pair of Jordans or whatever it is, because I actually do care about it. It's not because I'm I'm trying to, you know, pump a stock up that the idea is in that tweet that you were talking about, I didn't talk about it being on our app until the 20th tweet or 30th tweet. You know what I mean? Like I'm not in a position that I want to sell it. I do care about it. And we want to make sure that all of our investors care about it too.
0: Very cool. I got two last questions for you. Yeah. Uh, First one. What are you most proud of about the product?
1: um i mean the the
0: community that we've
1: built and the the relationships that I've created from this app are something that in the last three and a half years of doing this. I didn't get from the first, you know, 33 years of my life, basically. I think a lot of people that came in with it's such a diverse group, and they've been, re- the people that are really happy about it, when I hear about them talking about it with friends, or they're bringing people to our store, or like in Soho, when I see somebody on the street, like with the app out during an IPO, like I, I always run around the streets and see who's talking about it kind of a little bit, is really, really rewarding. It's also super promising in terms of the future of finance. I think that what we've always wanted to create, in this other world of investing is starting to happen very actively right now. And it's great to see that landscape kind of develop
0: and us be the forefront of that for sure. Very cool. Amazing. Uh, last question for you. So this is a little bit of a, a different type of question. I ask everybody who comes on the podcast about it. If I told you that you had to start a taco truck next week, you were done with Rally Road, you sold it for a couple hundred million bucks. You're good, but you can't spend that money on the taco truck. You got to start mm, from scratch. How would you do that? What would the first six months of that taco truck look like?
1: Man, I need money and I need to understand how it works. So I'm probably going to go work for some taco trucks. I'm going yeah. fi- to find some really popping taco trucks. And I'm going <laughs> to ask for a job. I'll say I'll work for free, you know, one of those situations <laughs> and learn the business. But I mean, this is for us, we always looked at it like the competitive landscape didn't exist when we started. So when we came out, it was like, here's all this white space, how do we tackle the most of it? I would look at it the same way. I think that I, that's actually a thing I want to do. Like I want to leave, I want to like open a coffee shop or something at some point, like build furniture and not worry about money. That would be awesome. But I want to do that in a place where i could still make money if i need to and i want to if it was a taco truck it's the same thing i'm in my head i'm thinking about that now i know a few spots where a taco truck probably do really really well i try and find i definitely work for somebody who understands that process start to finish and absorb as much information as i possibly could at the same time i'd be like as a designer i'm designing logos and thinking about what differentiates my truck from all the other ones And then I'm finding that spot. Like you gotta go, you gotta go where the money is. You know what I mean? Like you can open the lemonade stand, you can't do it in the middle of nowhere. You gotta put it somewhere where kids want lemonades. That's like the next one is really starting to understand where the where that total addressable market lives. Just like anything else, I'm stuck in this. I'm stuck in VC terms, man. I'm I'm always trying to think about how we're gonna raise money. So that's where we're at.
0: No, that's a good one. That sounds like fun. If you ever do that, I would start that taco truck. Man,
1: I might be doing this. Might be Brian and Rob's taco truck might be coming soon, man. I don't know. That'd be nice.
0: Awesome. Uh, This is amazing, man. I really appreciate it. I think we got a lot of good stuff here. No,
1: likewise, dude. I always appreciate it, man. What you guys are doing. at tackle box soon what you've you've always been super supportive and checking up on what we're doing it's been super i'm super super appreciative and you're like the third person who knew about this too so have (laughs) it all come full circle and be talking to you about it is awesome
0: it is actually really cool to see it come because that that idea that you pitched to me is this in a way like it was you were telling stories around specific items and that's what you're doing and you're doing it and allowing people to purchase or be a part of it it's awesome congrats rob thank you appreciate you coming on likewise Head over to gettacklebox.com and click podcast to get some more detailed notes. And if you made it this far, please toss us a subscribe, a rating, and a review. Thanks. Have a great week.